Do you uh, open your Bibles to Romans chapter 11? We're going to be finishing chapter 11 this morning, looking at verses 33 to 36. Uh, it's going to be a great passage. If you need to use one of the pew Bibles in front of you, you're going to find Romans 11 on page 891. Page 891, if you're using the pew Bibles, Romans chapter 11, verse 33. Uh, I just want to uh, encourage you all this weekend, if you haven't already made plans and signed up, I want to encourage you to show up at Nation Exploration. It's going to be fantastic. Uh, it is an immersive experience. I, I notice we're no longer calling it family-friendly, so maybe we're getting more intense with it. So it's going to be fantastic. Uh, Friday night I was here, and one of the volunteers, he's an industrial designer, was actually making an airplane wing, like to scale. And I have no idea where that fits in, but that's going to be a pretty amazing. So uh, that's going to be Friday, Saturday night. So please sign up for that and be there. Um, if at the very least, so you get a sense of what, how we think about missions and, and learn about our philosophy, home missionaries, hard places, healthy churches, because you're a part of that, whether you know it or not. When you give your giving to the Lord, a portion of that is going to the works outside of South Orange County in this church. And in some sense, think of it as a, a, a spiritual stock portfolio. Don't you want to know where your investment's going? What kind of return you're getting on that? Right? So you're going to learn some of, that, some of that this weekend. So I really want to encourage you. Amen, Emmett? Amen. And Danny, Liam's got your pipes. Why would you take him out? He was singing and going for it. It was beautiful. Anyway, hi, Liam. He's in the back there somewhere. All right. Uh, I want to begin this morning, uh, since I'm kind of already off the rails. Uh, <laughs> hey, Bobby and Monica Brown are here. Where are you guys at? <sighs> the Browns are back. Love them so much, they want to come back, move back to California. All right. Uh, I want to begin this morning, I guess I was going to say in a bit of an or unorthodox manner, and I've already started that, so I'm keeping in, in step with that. I want to do something I have never done in eight years of preaching here and opening a sermon, and that is to quote at length somebody else. And I realize how dangerous that is because, uh, you know, today's Super Bowl Sunday, so you guys understand the two-minute warning. And in preaching classes, they always tell you you have a two-minute warning, but unlike a football game, the two-minute warning comes on the front end. If you lose them in the first two minutes, you're done. Game over, right? And so I recognize by me reading a long quote, staring down, reading somebody, I could lose you. But this is a great quote. And, and, and so I want to read it in its entirety. It's by a man that many people don't know uh, any longer. His name was David Foster Wallace. And David Foster Wallace in the late 90s and early 2000s was considered a literary genius, a prodigy with the pen. Time Magazine called, I think it was his debut novel, Time Magazine called Infinite Jest one of the most important American novels since 1923. Uh, and, and unfortunately though, like, all genius, it comes at a price, and David Foster Wallace couldn't overcome the demons in his life and committed suicide at the young age of 46. But three years before he did that, he gave a commencement speech at Kenyon College. And, and it's, that's part, I want to read a part of that to you, because Foster Wallace, he, he had no professed faith in Christ. Oh, my little thing came off here. Foster Wallace had no professed faith in Christ, but he reveals such a profound grasp of biblical truth and insight, insight into human personality and the way we tick, 
And, and honestly, considering his unfortunate demise, maybe a little bit of autobiographical regret that I thought was just so riveting that I want you to hear what he had to say. And so here he is. This is what he says. A huge percentage of the stuff that I tend to be automatically certain of is, as it turns out, totally wrong and deluded. Here's one example of the utter wrongness of something I tend to be automatically sure of. Everything in my own immediate experience supports my deep belief that I am the absolute center of the universe, the realest, the most vivid and important person in existence. We rarely talk about this sort of natural, basic self-centeredness because it's so socially repulsive, but it's pretty much the same for all of us deep down. It is our default setting, hardwired into our bodies at birth. Think about it. There is no experience you've had that you were not at the absolute center of. The world as you experience it is right there in front of you or behind you or to the left of you or the right of you, on your TV or on your monitor or whatever. Other people's thoughts and feelings have to be communicated to you somehow, but your own are so immediate, urgent, real, you get the idea. But please don't worry that I'm getting ready to preach to you about compassion or other directness or the so-called virtues. This is not a matter of virtue. It's a matter of choosing to do the work of somehow altering or getting free of my natural hardwired default setting, which is to be deeply and literally self-centered and to see and interpret everything through this lens of self. Paragraph two, there's three, paragraph two. Because here's something that's also true. In the day-to-day -day trenches of adult life, there's actually no such thing as atheism. There is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And an astounding reason for choosing some sort of God or, or spiritual type thing to worship, be it JC, Jesus Christ, or Allah, or be it Yahweh, or the wicked mother goddess, or the four noble truths, or some infrangible set of ethical principles, is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough, never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly, and when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they plant, finally plant you. On one level, we already all know this stuff. It's been codified as myths, proverbs, cliches, epigrams, parables, the skeleton of every great story. The trick is keeping the truth up front in daily consciousness. Worship power and you will feel weak and afraid and you will need ever more power over others to keep that fear at bay. Worship your intellect being seen as smart and you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out and so on. Final paragraph. Look, the insidious thing about these forms of worship is not that they're evil or sinful. It's that they're unconscious. They are default settings. They're the kind of worship you just gradually slip into day after day, getting more and more selective about what you see and how you measure value without ever being fully aware that that's what, that that's what you're doing. 
And the world will not discourage you from, your operating, from operating on your default settings because the world of men and money and power hums along quite nicely on the fuel of our fear and contempt and frustration and craving the worship of self. Our own present culture has harnessed these forces in ways that have yielded extraordinary wealth and comfort and personal freedom. The freedom to be lords of our own tiny skull-sized kingdoms, alone at the center of all creation. This kind of freedom has much to recommend it. But of course, there are all different kinds of freedom. And the kind that is most precious, you will not hear much talked about in the great outside world of winning and achieving and displaying. The really important kind of freedom involves attention and awareness and discipline and effort and being able truly to care about other people and to sacrifice for them over and over in myriad petty little unsexy ways every day. That is real freedom. The alternative, he says, and he wraps up with this, is unconsciousness, the default setting, the rat race, the constant gnawing sense of having had and lost some infinite thing. Now let me read you Romans eleven thirty three. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, Paul writes. How unsearchable are his judgments, how unscru inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor, or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Friends, the question before you is, what do these two readings have in common? I'll tell you. They both have a profound understanding of the superstructure of human being and its corresponding mystery. And because we all worship, we need to live for something that truly matters. Wallace says, I love the way he framed it, that we're free to live in our own skull-sized kingdoms. And he says that's the most common freedom that there is. Or choose a different freedom. A freedom, he says, that is tied to some infinite thing. Romans eleven thirty three 33 to 36 reveals to us that that infinite thing is a person, the eternal immortal God. Friends, these four verses are one of those chunks of scripture that will rearrange the furniture of your universe if you're willing to let it. And it's all aimed toward God and his worship. It's, a very, it's very simple, straightforward, and profound four verses. And if you notice that, look at them. They contain two statements about God, followed by three questions about God. An answer to those questions and the only logical conclusion you could draw in response to those six things, which is that God is worthy of glory forever. Let me begin, like we always should when we're studying God's word, to place it in its context and then we'll dive into it. 
any set of scripture always finds itself in a particular context. It's immediate context of the verses that immediately saw, for, uh, surround it, and then it's broader context. So the immediate context of these four verses is Romans chapter 9 through 11 that we've been studying for the last three or four weeks. Arguably the most philosophically difficult portion of the entire book of Romans. So Paul naturally, as he wraps this section up, points to the kind of conclusion of this in verse 33, that unsearchable are God's judgments. In other words, God knows more than you could ever possibly imagine. He's figured it all out. Fact check them all you want. And his judgments are airtight and solid. You couldn't argue with the conclusions he comes to. And then he says, unsearchable are his judgments, inscrutable are his ways. He's kind of saying the same thing in in a more vivid language. He's saying, look, if you want to figure out the mind of God to every detail, it's as futile as tracking footsteps on the sea. You just can't do this. So in light of the in light of the tensions of God's sovereignty and human responsibility that we can't reconcile, what should be our response to the judgments and ways of God that are always good, always beautiful, always true? And he says the conclusion is worship. That, that's the right response. That's the immediate context of, of why he's saying this in Romans 9 through 11. But the more broader context is these four verses are a, a response to everything we heard in chapters 1 through 8 the profound and beautiful gospel message that saves us from what David Foster Wallace said, the worship of self and the creation around us. But those verses not only serve as a response to everything that came in chapters 1 through 8, they're also the grounds for everything that's going to come in chapters 12 through 16. Why God is worthy to be worshipped, why he's worth living for, why he deserves our obedience because of what we just read here. So in these four verses, you see them on the, the, the breakdown of the argument like this, these four verses give us these reasons why God is truly worth living for. And, and notice how the argument works. Let me give you kind of an analytical outline of the same thing. So verse 33 is Paul's statement. God's incomparable. He's inscrutable in his judgments and his ways in all that he does. That's the statement. Then he follows it up with a proof, some proofs of that, verses 34 to 35, and that proofs is God's not dependent on anyone else. He's incomparable to anything else because partly he's not dependent on anyone else. And then he grounds those proofs in the fact that God is the source, the sustainer, and the goal of everything. And then the logical conclusion from this is God is worthy of glory. So that's the analytical outline of what Paul is saying in these four verses. Let's look at them one at a time. Here's the statement. God is incomparable to anything else. Now, in the prophet Isaiah, God asks the people of Israel through the prophet Isaiah three times, can you compare me to anything else that is out there? What can compare to me? I'm beyond comparison. For you note-takers, that's in Isaiah 40 and Isaiah 46. It's that last half of Isaiah as God's bringing about his people back, to, uh, uh, promising to bring them out of exile and restore to them the promises he made to Abraham. And he's saying, nothing can compare to me. Friends, we can barely begin to describe God if not for his self-revelation to us through the Bible, let alone compare him to anything that would, could possibly be remotely similar to him. Now, in his book, um, Miracles, C.S. Lewis is making the same kind of point in a very humorous way of having shellfish 
trying to explain to other shellfish what man is like. And, and, and because we can only communicate truth through common shared experience, that's the way truth is communicated, it's this very funny interaction between these shellfish. So one shellfish tells the others that man has no shell. Man is not attached to a rock, and man does not live in water. So to help get the idea across, the more academic learned shellfish expand on these statements, and they conclude that that man is some kind of this amorphous jelly, because he doesn't have a shell after all, right? So he's this amorphous jelly, existing nowhere in particular, because if he's not on a rock, where does he exist? And uh, never takes in nourishment, because there's no water to drift it to him. So the conclusion they reason is that man must be a famished jelly floating in a dimensionless void. Now, the reason we find that somewhat humorous is because we understand that that's not what man is at all. But from the perspective of shellfish, you could see how they might conclude that. And we think that finite man can grasp infinite God, and yet we don't see the inconsistency that if we try to conceive of God apart from his self-revelation in the Bible, we're always going to get it wrong. And so sometimes that looks like Oh, God is, must be like this benign grandfather in heaven, very loving and benevolent, but kind of little, not altogether there and harmless, so we just kind of enjoy him and put up with him. Or that God is kind of like a Santa Claus, making sure that we're doing good and not bad, and, and he'll reward us accordingly. Or on the other hand, that God is some vindictive tyrant and demands all this, he's a narcissist. Or that He's a cosmic buzzkill with all his rules. You see, we, we come up with these conclusions of who God is from our own understanding, not drawn from his word. On the other hand, we can make the mistake too far on the other direction by thinking because God is who he is, we can never know him. Right? You've heard people say that. How can you possibly know God? You Christians are arrogant making these claims about God. He's way up there. How could you know? See, again, the classic problem of on the one side we err on thinking that he's too much like us and we can describe him the way we want. On the other side, we err in thinking we could never understand or describe him because he's completely different from us. When the truth is, it's actually more in the middle. Let me give you an illustration that you can probably understand. How many of you have had a child that's been, well, it's five years old at some time? Raise your hands. Yeah, okay. So many of us, right? Here's my question. When your child was five, six, whatever that age, four, five, six, did they know you truly? I'm seeing some no's, I'm seeing some yeses, and here's the tension. Yeah, they, they, they knew you truly. In other words, you weren't pretending to be something you weren't. When you told your children, don't worry, dad or daddy or mommy will take care of everything, you meant that. They, they knew that you were dependable, that you loved them. They knew what they knew of you truly, but the reason there's a tension is you also know, but they don't know you fully. And here's the what I'm getting at. Your child did know you truly when they were five, but you know they didn't know you fully. But what they did know of you was real. You weren't pretending to be something you weren't. You wanted them to have that relationship with you, but they couldn't possibly know you fully because a five-year-old cannot understand that. Friends, in the same way, what we do know of God, we know truly. And it is who he is. But the reality is we also don't know him fully. There's a difference. 
And what I love about where Paul puts us at the end of our study in Romans, especially as we've been wrestling through God's sovereignty and human responsibility, is this comforting truth that we don't need to know or understand everything to live for the God who does. We don't need to know and understand everything to worship him, to love him, to live for him. Yet there are some people who do kind of feel that way, don't they? You, you might have heard something along the lines of like, well, I, I can't really commit and trust the Lord or God because I, I can't understand him entirely or uh, get what he's doing or all about him. So I can't really commit to that. You've heard some kind of variation of that. Yet these are the same kind of people that, you know, they'll jump into a car and they have no idea about how internal combustion engine works, right? Or electric motors. Or they will call an electrician to come work on their house that they could burn their house down if they're not qualified enough, but they will do that. And a thousand other ways we will commit and trust to something even though we don't understand it entirely. And when you think about it, friends, a God that you could fully understand or grasp all of his ways would sound like a pretty limited God. True? It's probably right. If you back up for a second and think, if the thing that I live for, I completely, totally understand and grasp. If that's the case, then the thing that I'm living for is probably too small a thing to be living for. That's just the reality. Paul makes a second point. He, he kind of makes the proof of why he's uncomparable in verse 34 to 35. Notice what he said. He shows it. Because God is not dependent on anyone else. And the three questions that is asked, all the answers are implied, no one. No one can grasp all of God's thinking. No one can add one bit to his knowledge. No one can give him anything because he doesn't lack anything. Now here's a little bit of uh, maybe a mind-blowing thought. Maybe you hadn't thought about this before. But do you realize that God does not think? Stop there for Think about that for a second. God doesn't think. What I mean is, thinking implies process, the weighing of arguments, drawing a conclusion. Thinking implies you have to have some knowledge filled in to get there, but the reality is God has access to everything all the time, all at once. Bam. He knows everything. Friends, we cannot even begin to comprehend what this means or must be like. The Bible tells us that God is omniscient. In other words, that he is all-knowing. He doesn't have to think like you or I. He knows everything about everything right now. Friends, he not only knows all facts, he knows all possible counterfacts. So let me explain what that is. A, a counterfact or a counterfactual is what would have happened if you turned left at Albuquerque instead of going right? What would have happened if you lived and stayed in Seattle rather than moving down to South Orange County? What would have happened had you said yes to his proposal instead of no? That's a counterfactual. God knows not only all the facts of your life and every life that ever was, is, and will be, he also knows all the counterfactuals of every life that was, is, and could be. Not only does God know all the facts and counterfactuals, God knows all the perspectives regarding all the facts and counterfactuals that there ever was, is, and will be. He knows it all instantly. 
And to tease that out even more, friends, what that means is not only does he know all the facts and counterfactuals of this world and every possible world that could have, would have been, because each counterfactual spins off new decision trees, new possibilities, and new opportunities, and God knows them all instantly. Now, if you're paying attention and I haven't lost you, at this point, the math nuts amongst us are going, what? Because the computational reality of that is mind-blowing. And you Marvel fans are being blown away because you saw Stan Lee create the multiverse. And no, the Bible's been talking about that and theologians have been discussing this for five centuries at least. God knows everything of every perspective instantaneously. No one can add to his knowledge. No one can fill in some perspective that he doesn't have. He has it all. And the reason that God is not dependent upon anyone else is because point number three, we see in verse 36, the very first half of verse 36, look at what it says. For from him and through him and to him are all things. Notice that what Paul says, for, whenever you see that in the Bible, it's serving as explanatory, whatever's going to follow that for is serving as the explanatory grounds for what came before. Paul says, for, and look at these three prepositional phrases, that from him, speaking of source, God is the source, through him, speaking of sustainability or sustenance, and to him, speaking of goal or purpose. So from source to sustenance to purpose, from him, through him, to him, are a few things. Nope. Some things? No. What does Paul say? All things. The reason God doesn't need any perspective or insight is because everything is contained in him. Friends, this is what theologians call the doctrine of God's aseity. Now, that, that's a fancy word that just simply means God's self-existence. Everything else you need needs something else. Everything you need needs something else but not God. He alone needs nothing because he alone is everything. And that's what Paul is saying here. Everything else you need, the things that you're living for, needs something else except God himself. So friends, whatever it is you're living for, whatever you're giving your life to, if it is not God and the glory of Christ, it can and it will go away. Relationships, Friendships, money, achievement, success, your children, your dog, your health, your good looks, your wit, your mental clarity, your presence of mind, all will be gone with the inevitable march of time. Even, scientists tell us, the sun will burn out and everything else will perish. Now, we don't care about that because how many millions of years that's going to be, we don't know. But the point is, everything else you need in life needs something else. And if the thing you're living for needs something else, then it can be taken from you. And that is true of everything except God. Paul is saying that he is the inexhaustible source, the sustainer and purpose of all things. Which means if you live for him, you are connected to the very source, the sustenance and the goal of the fountain of life. That's what he's saying here. 
So given what Paul is saying, making this huge statement that there is, God is alone incomparable. Right? He, he doesn't depend on anyone else because he's the source of everything. What's the only logical conclusion that Paul says can be drawn from this? And that's the second half of verse 36. To him be glory forever. Amen. Friends, what have we learned in the last few weeks together in our study of Romans 9 through 11? Romans chapter 9, right? God's word, the gospel, has not failed. Romans chapter 10, anyone who's willing to believe in the gospel, receive God's word, will be saved. Romans 11, God will not abandon his people. Now, to be clear, in our three weeks, we haven't explained all the mystery and figured out all the tensions and now understand everything and how it works out. But what these four verses remind us, friends, is that the limits of our understanding of the gospel, there is still awe, there is still wonder, there is still joy, and there is still hope. God is working out all of his plans despite any appearance to the contrary, and they will come about, and his glory will endure forever, is what Paul is saying here. So friends, the question I want to ask you is, have you gotten in on that? Is that the thing you're living for? I love how Greg's talking about, um, you did talk about this, right, Greg? Yeah, the Tom Brady, people spent, would you say, 90, $99,000 to buy the sand that his feet stood upon. <laughs> you know how foolish that is. I was just thinking like, and I get it, if you're into sports, I get it. When the day my daughter was born, I nicknamed her Snowflake because I was the first snowfall that we had. And I ran outside with a Tupperware thing and I was running out like a fool catching snow. And I, I cherished that. I put it in the freezer. It was going to be like this wonderful gift on her wedding day. I kind of envisioned throwing snowflakes on her. It was awesome. It was awesome. And then somebody in the Midwest opened their freezer, wanted shave ice and poured syrup on it and ate it. At least I think that's how it happened. My point is, what are you thinking? Sand, snowflake, the thing you're living for. Now those are comical. But all the things that we're living for, giving ourselves to, are just going to go away. They're going to go away. Except God and his glory. And the question I ask is, what's keeping you from that? Are you like the child with their face smushed up against the glass, just looking at the treats? What's preventing you from going in and tasting the sweetness and the goodness of it? I already told you the answer. Actually, David Foster Wallace told you the answer. He says it's, it's your default setting to be self-centered. Keep in mind, he wasn't a believer. And, and when I read him, I, my heart breaks because I wonder if he ever heard the gospel because he understood the, the problem, but he never found the solution. He says it's your default setting to be self-centered. Kings and queens of our own skull-sized kingdoms thinking we're free, but in reality slaves to our own warped definition of freedom. I cannot tell you what the world is the, our definition of freedom, we live for freedom when we really should be living for fulfillment and, and God's understanding and obedience to him comes through that. But I've been studying a lot about transgenderism and, and intersexuality. And what breaks my heart 
what breaks my heart is every one of these people are longing for a human good to be who they think they should be, to be free. And that's why they're doing it. They're just like you and I. Don't look at them and go, what freaks you are. They're longing to be who they think they need to be and they want that freedom. You can relate to that. But there's a, defin a warped definition of freedom. It just so happens to be from our perspective, you can see the warpedness, but you are, your definitions are just as warped if they're not defined through this. Maybe your definitions are just more acceptable than theirs. But what Foster Wallace is saying is right on. It's our default settings. And, and, and these four verses, they're trying to tell you the solution. Friends, what, what God united in the Garden of Eden, that his glory and our joy are combined, was divorced because of sin and the consequence of self-worship. And it's only the gospel that restores that wholeness again. And ironically, that wholeness does not come from seeking your own glory, but his but here's the thing that's so amazing. But in realizing the, the, the but in realizing that at the in the end, the glory of God is the human person fully realized. Because, because we were made to be in his image. And he wants his glory that cannot be contained, manifested in all the billions of uniquenesses that is you and I. But sin destroyed that and warps us into these carnival mirror reflections of what we should be. We think we are this, but it's all warped. But when then we say, no, no, we were made for his glory, it's in forgetting yourself that you actually become your true self that you were intended to be from God's creational design. So the question is, how do we do that? How do we get in on that? And to this, John Piper uh, helps us out in his book, the Pleasures of God, and I love the subtitle, it's awesome. The subtitle of his book, Meditations on God's Delight in Being God. <laughs> That's awesome. Like, God loves being God, right? Now, you would think, well, I wouldn't mind being God, but you, you for, yes, for selfish reasons. God loves being God because he loves the fact that his glory and goodness is a blessing wherever it goes. And here's what it says. It's just genius. You probably can't read that and see that, but I put it up there anywhere. This is what Piper says. Beholding glory begs for lingering. Wow. I mean, I, I know I'm a, kind of a spaz pastor, so I want to intentionally pause because I, I don't tend to linger. But that's powerful, man. It begs for lingering. The modern, fast-paced world will, will tempt you to rush and skim. This kind of life will make you shallow. The world does not need more widely read, shallow people. It needs deep people. I don't mean complex. I don't mean highly educated. I don't mean you have to know big words. I don't mean you have to know historical background. I mean you have, to, I mean you have seen glory. The glory of God in his word. You've pondered it and felt its relation to all the parts of your life. You have been steadied and satisfied by it. You have come home. You're not frantic anymore. You are at peace in the presence of God 
This is what I mean by deep. This is what the world needs. Friends, this week, will you linger? Will you linger over Romans? Linger over the gospel? Linger over your desperate need of a savior? Will you linger and see the beauty of the glory of God in the face of Christ as it's revealed to us in his word? But like Piper says, What's that first line? Beholding glory begs for lingering. Your phone, get rid of it, right? All the distractions, your iPad, get rid of it. All the things that beep and chime and distract from the thing that matters most by things that matter least. Get rid of it and linger so that you see the beauty of the gospel in the cross of Christ as it's in his word. So that you can become fully who you were meant to be. Not chasing freedoms of an ever-receding horizon. And my heart breaks for the people in that community. My heart breaks for all people who just think freedom is found in looking at yourself. It's not. Freedom is found looking at the one who made you. I think appropriate end to to Paul's um, this wonderful praise of God. We're going to end our service a little unusual like we began it. I would like you all to stand. I can think of no appropriate way than to end what we've just read from Paul by praying together. Well, I will read it and pray it on behalf of all of us. A wonderful psalm. Would you close your eyes with me as we close our sermon in this prayer? Psalm 150. Praise the Lord, Paul, the, the psalmist writes, praise God in his sanctuary. Praise him in his, in his mighty heavens. Praise him for his mighty deeds. Praise him according to his excellent greatness. Praise him with trumpet sound. Praise him with lute and harp. Praise him with tambourine and dance. Praise him with strings and pipe. Praise him with sounding cymbals. Praise him with loud clashing cymbals. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Thanks for listening to this message from Christ Community Church of Laguna Hills. For more information and resources from Christ Community, visit us at www.ccclh.org.